This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Mike Witherell. I'm lab director at this great laboratory. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our first event in our Women in Science speaker series. This series is designed to bring women with extraordinary accomplishments in science to the lab to talk to our community. I am very pleased to be able to welcome Jennifer Doudna to the lab today. She is responsible for one of the most significant discoveries in biology with Emmanuel Charpentier, that CRISPR-Cas9 could be used for programmable editing of DNA. All of us recognize that her accomplishments were exceptional they were exceptional even before that. Uh, she won the uh, Alan Waterman Prize that the National Science Foundation gives to scientists under the age of 35. Uh, in fact, that's, such, that's so hard to do, they've now upped the age limit to 40 because they <laughs> couldn't find any below 35. Uh, and that's across all fields of science. And she is producing new breakthroughs at a remarkable rate. Jennifer Doudna is a professor in the chemistry and molecular and cell biology departments at the University of California, Berkeley, an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and fortunately for all of us here, a faculty researcher in the molecular biophysics and integrated bioimaging division here at Berkeley Lab. In addition, she is a co-founder of two companies, Carbon Biosciences, which explores the research uses of CRISPR-Cas9, and Intellia Therapeutics, which works on disease treatments. Her book, A Crack in Creation, Gene Editing and the Unthinkable Power to Control Evolution, tells her story of her discovery of CRISPR-Cas9. This technology has brought Jennifer into the spotlight, not only as a scientist, but as a science communicator. She is addressing directly the profound philosophical questions in bioethics as she and others grapple with the enormous implications for humans of this new technology, plants and animals as well. This new technique could change the world in ways that we're still trying to understand, and her book is an attempt to engage people beyond the scientific community in that conversation because it is so important. Among her Numerous awards and accomplishments are the National Academy of Sciences Award for Initiatives and in Research, the FNIH Lurie Prize, the Packard Foundation Fellow Award, the Alan Waterman Award of the National Science Foundation, the Breakthrough Prize, the Japan Prize, and she's a fellow of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Institute of Medicine. Uh, Jennifer grew up in Hilo, Hawaii, on the Big Island, where her father was an English professor at the University of Hawaii, Hilo, uh, as you read about in her book. She received a BS in chemistry from Pomona College and her PhD in biological chemistry from Harvard. I'm also, I'm going to save your applause because we'll do this together, I'm also uh, welcoming Joe Pelka, who is, you'll recognize as NPR science correspondent and a well-known science communicator. Joe is well-known for his insightful reporting on science and technology. All of us who listen to NPR know his voice. Uh, he began his journalism career in television, working as a health producer for the CBS affiliate in Washington, 
later turned to print journalism, worked for Nature, worked for Science, and went on to NPR. We appreciate his wide-ranging appetite to report on everything. We have such a wide range of science and technology here, and he reports on almost all of those, and so we appreciate his breadth. And we look forward to hearing more from his series, Joe's Big Ideas, Exploring How Ideas Become Innovations and Inventions. And he also co-authored the book, Annoying, the Science of What Bugs Us. <laughs> Joe has also won numerous awards, the National Academy's Communications Award, so that's from all of us who appreciate the work that he does, uh, the Science and Society Award of the National Association of Science Writers, American Chemical Society Award for Interpreting Chemistry, and the AAAS Journalism Prize. So uh, Joe received an A.B. in psychology from Pomona College and a Ph.D. in psychology from University of California at Santa Cruz. So all together now, please join me in welcoming Jennifer and Joe. Actually, I was trying to figure out why they invited a man to interview someone for the Women in Science series, but I realized it's Pomona, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. They had to find somebody from Pomona. It's a great school. Um, so, actually, just to get us started, um, because I've been thinking about it, this is a Women in Science series, and I'm curious if you think you would give a different talk, or we would have a different conversation if this was a man in science series? Well, I think you wouldn't ask me that question. Right. <laughs> it's true. And I have decided that I will never ask a woman scientist a question that I, won't, that I wouldn't ask of a male scientist. And we can talk about what those might be. But the point is, they started it. <laughs> they called the series Women in Science. And so... What I want to know is, why do we have to have a series, a lecture series, with that title? What does it, what does it change about science, and what does it say about science, that you would have a women in science series? Well, I'll make, I'll make two comments. Um, you know, I, I, uh, when I was in my formative years, you know, training to become a scientist, I never thought of myself as a woman in science. I always just thought of myself as a scientist. I thought it was super cool that I could, you know, learn how to do science. So it was only later, really, I would say much later in my career, probably after I was a tenured professor, that I started to really appreciate that there are um, issues that come up that are unique to women in science that really still need attention and need to be grappled with. So that's one thing. And I, can I make one other comment? And that is that I also have, I have colleagues who are women in science who by just by, uh, by, by sort of personal uh, policy, they don't accept any awards or do any events that are for women in science because they think that's, you know, a, a strange thing. They think scientists should all just be sort of considered together. And, um, but here I am doing this limited science event. So I, again, I sort of have come to feel that there are some very, very important uh, issues relevant to women in science in particular that actually do need attention. And we shouldn't run away from that. We shouldn't shy away from it or pretend that it's not there. I think we should just grapple with it and talk about it. Right. So is there, is there anything 
unique about science as opposed to law or medicine or some other field, or is there something special about science? I don't know if it's unique to science. I mean, I think science is a career that um, is, um, at least for me, and I think people, you know, all here that are, are doing science, it's kind of all-encompassing, at least, uh, you know, you, you feel very, very engaged in it kind of all the time. It's not a career that you do nine to five, uh, five days a week, and then do something else the rest of the time. And I think those of us that are doing science, we're doing it because we really are passionate about it. We love what we do, and we find ourselves thinking about it all the time. And, and so it, it helps to have uh, things like a partner who understands that passion, and you know, trying to get uh, sort of balance with the rest of your life. It's a, you know, it's a sort of a constant struggle. How do you how do you how do you balance your intellectual passion and what you're doing at work with what what else is going on? And that's not unique to women, and it's certainly not unique to, to science. But I do think it's there are uh, aspects of that uh, that that you know that sort of um, you know women do have to have to deal with that that uh, don't affect men in the same way. So I'm just curious. You, you said that you didn't really think about the the issue of I'm a woman in science. So when did you feel like you had become a successful scientist? I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then we're interviewing the wrong person. <laughs> no, I guess what I mean by that is that I, you know we're always striving as scientists, right? We're always for me, it's always about the process of discovery. I think that's so exciting. It's really it's really fun to be working on the next problem. And I still remember. I think it's probably when I was in graduate school that uh, you know I had done a done a body of work, and you know we wrote a paper and got accepted and it got published in the journal Nature, you know, and and I, I, you know, people were telling me, wow, that's just amazing that you, you know, get, get some, you know, some, some of your work, you know, as a graduate student published in Nature, and I, I felt this odd sense of kind of letdown, and I was trying to figure out why, like, why do I feel let down, and I realized that, well, I, I know the answer to that now, and what I, what I really wanted, what I'm really excited about is, is the next question, you know, the things that I don't know yet things that are mysteries and puzzles that I'm, that I'm working on. And I think that's, that's kind of, I think for many of us that are scientists, that's, that's how we operate, right? Once you know the answer, it's not nearly as exciting as when you, when you are still grappling with something and trying to figure something out. I think that's really why we, we go into science in the first place. Yeah, I think that we were talking about before, before the lecture started, we talked about the nonlinear process of science where you start out, well, maybe, maybe we can just in a linear sense, talk a little bit about your starting out and how you get, went from Hilo to Pomona to Harvard to Yale. What, what was the person? When did, when did it become clear that something in this scientific realm was something you wanted to spend your life doing? Um, so I, you know, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Hilo, Hawaii. And, and I, um, my, my family was... They were academics, but not scientists. And I and, uh, went to a you know, public high school where most of the kids were not college-bound. And um, I just, you know, I always loved, I loved math. I loved, I loved my chemistry class in, in high school. And I began to, you know, I always sort of had the sense that, uh, I'm, you know, I know I want to have a, a career sometime. And I, I didn't really have any particular designs on what that would be. But then I... I took a took a uh, one of these aptitude tests in high school, and and the scores came back. And my 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 uh, top career based on my score on this aptitude test was was civil engineer. 
<laughs> First of all, I had no idea what an engineer was. Civil engineer? Well, no, is it somebody who's polite? <laughs> so I, I um, but that was an interesting thing because it kind of gave me the idea that, huh, I wonder if, wonder if you know, what, what if I were to go into science? I did sort of never occurred to me before. And then I, um, you know, I had a very encouraging chemistry teacher in high school who kind of focused on the fact that science was not about memorizing a bunch of facts in a textbook. It was actually about figuring things out, solving puzzles. You know, my dad was a guy that always liked to do crypto quotes, and you know, we did lots of. We always had a we always had a jigsaw puzzle going in our house. You know, growing up, and randomly walk around the house and you know, put in a few pieces on the jigsaw puzzle. And, so there was a, this sense of you know that, that you know that it's fun to, to grapple with a problem that's big and you know you have to try to solve it. So I think for me that's really how it got started. And then I um, you know I, I got sort of enamored with the idea of applying chemistry to biology, which in the you know late 70s, early 80s when I was finishing high school was kind of kind of a new idea at the time. And Pomona College, the reason I went to Pomona was that Pomona was one of the one of the few small liberal arts colleges at that time in the, in the country that had a, an undergraduate major in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why I ended up there. So you graduated from Pomona and you said to yourself, I think I'd like to build a gene editing system. <laughs> I wonder what I should do next. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, no, not exactly. <laughs> well, so, so, yeah, so that's one of the things that I like about this whole story is that it, it, it emerges well down the line. So what was the thinking going in? I mean, you go to, go to graduate school, what, what, what problem did you want to solve at that point? Or, or were you handed a problem and that was fine because you didn't have one in mind? Well, uh, more, the, more the latter, I guess. I, you know, I, at Pomona, I had worked in the lab of Sharon Panasenko, who was mm -hmm. our, our, uh, our biochemistry professor. She was studying how bacteria communicate with each other. And so in my summer project in her lab, I was studying the way that proteins in the membranes of bacteria become chemically changed. They're methylated during this communication, uh, communication process. And loved the project. It was a lot of fun. I thought, of course, that's what I want to do when I go to graduate school. Um, but I got to Harvard Medical School, where I was, I was uh, going to, going to start starting my graduate program. And there actually wasn't anybody there who was <laughs> looking at uh, how soil bacteria communicate with each other. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and, um, so I, I um, you know, I started, I, I did uh, three laboratory rotations. I was working in, in several different labs. And, and honestly, I wish I could say that I had a brilliant uh, idea of what I wanted to do. But actually, it was more like uh, Roberto Coulter, who was the, uh, at that time a young faculty member in the microbiology department at, at Harvard, was the person in charge of the graduate program. And he, the person that actually called me my senior year at Pomona to tell me that I was accepted to the program, and after picking myself up off the floor, because I was so shocked uh, to get in, uh, you know, I said to him, you know, I, I think I might want to come out and start working in a lab over the summer, a little bit before the, the, the start of the school year. Would that be okay? And he said, sure. And he said, I just need to know uh, which lab you'd like to work in. And I said, um, how, how about yours? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he took me in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing led to another. And, and by the time I was doing my third rotation at, at, uh, in my program, I ended up in the lab of Jack Shostak. And 
he was, uh, again, a you know, very young guy at the time. He was working on recombination in yeast and trying to understand how DNA recombination works. But when I got to his lab, he said, well, actually, I'm, I'm switching fields. I'm really moving my lab in a very new direction. I want to work on, on the evolution of life, you know, the origin of life. And I thought, wow, that's, that's crazy. Can you really work on the origin of life and do experiments on this? And he said, yes, you can. So, uh, so that's how I got in, involved in working on RNA, because he was fascinated by the possibility that you could do experiments in the lab to test the idea that RNA molecules might have been kind of the primordial molecule of life. Okay, so you finished up at Harvard, and you said, I'd like to make a gene editing system. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there eventually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> might take a while. <laughs> All right. So, so okay, so but that's such a great topic. How did you ever get away from Origin of Life? I've seen his uh, lectures on that. I mean... That's pretty mesmerizing stuff. It, it didn't capture you, or there was there was another opera. I mean, how do you how do you move on from that? Well, it did capture me, but I uh, so I went to his lab, and you know, I did join his lab and worked on making a, an RNA ca- capable of replicating itself, other other synthesizing RNA effectively, and um, fun problem, you know, very challenging problem. And by the end of my graduate work, I realized that I felt like, you know, what this field really needs is we need to know what these molecules we're working on actually look like, what these RNA molecules uh, actually, what their shapes are and how they operate as as catalysts. So I went off to do a postdoc in Colorado with Tom Check, sort of the best RNA biochemist, you know, I could think of, who, um, you know, encouraged me to come to his lab to figure out how you might crystallize RNA and solve three-dimensional structures. And it was that, in the course of that work, that I ended up uh, taking a job at Yale in the mid-'90s to start my own academic lab, and that was my focus in those days. So it wasn't, it wasn't a complete uh, you mm-hmm. know, turn mm-hmm. away from origin of life questions, but it was more about understanding how those types of molecules might have, might have gotten started based on their 3D structures. So it was, so it was this interest in RNA that... Kept, that persisted through Yale, and you brought with you to um, to Berkeley. Uh, so, when, so eventually, you thought about someday I'll make it. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I know. I guess the reason I make this point is that it, 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 it's it's almost never the case that people absolutely start out with one problem in mind and get to the end and solve. I mean. Maybe Jack Shostak will solve the problem of how life originated. He might get there, yeah. might get there but, but he probably will solve a lot of... In fact, he's already been awarded the Nobel Prize for solving or being part of a solution to another problem. So um, when... I mean, I, I really like the serendipity of that, that did take you in the direct, direction that ultimately became the CRISPR project, CRISPR-Cas9. You got very mad at me when we first, when I first interviewed, not mad, I don't think you're mad, but when I first interviewed Jennifer, in, I think in 2014, I kept saying CRISPR, and she keeps saying, no, it's CRISPR-Cas9. And I said, no, it's CRISPR. And she said, no, it's CRISPR-Cas9. And you're absolutely right, of course, but I knew that CRISPR-Cas9 didn't roll off the tongue <laughs> and that journalists were just not going to put up with that. <laughs> so you were stuck with CRISPR, whether it was appropriate or not. And I'm glad to see that you've come on board with that. 
because it was finally beat me it was it was it was inevitable you were stuck but 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 the set but but the conversation was so great talk talk about how that began because it begins over coffee in a in a in in on the campus it does yeah free speech movement cafe so uh the, uh, the, the conversation was a, a discussion with Jill Banfield, who's a colleague of ours here at Berkeley. And it came through our uh, mutual interest in RNA, but coming at it from very, very different perspectives. So I came to Berkeley. I, I uh, you know, had been working on these catalytic RNAs while I was at Yale. And then when I got here, I decided that I really wanted to focus my lab on um, what I thought was kind of a broader question in biology, which was how... RNA molecules in general are controlling the flow of genetic information in cells, how, how cells decide which bit of, of, its, of, of the genetic code in the, in the genome is going to be deployed to make which kinds of proteins. And there was lots of evidence in the early, sort of late, late 90s, early 2000s, um, that cell, many different cells use small pieces of RNA to make those kinds of decisions. And I wanted to understand the molecular basis for that. So I came to Berkeley, and I was working away on, on, on sort of aspects of that question. And, um, and Jill Banfield, meanwhile, was working away on, on something completely different. She was studying the metagenomics of bacteria, trying to understand what kinds of <coughs> microbes grow in interesting environmental settings and what kinds of you know, viruses are infecting them, things like that. And um, in the course of her work, she had stumbled across a very curious observation, which was that many bacteria have in their genome an array of sequences that include little bits of viral sequence that are inserted between a repetitive uh, DNA element. That's really what the acronym CRISPR refers to, is these sequence arrays that have viral sequence integrated, sort of a vaccination card at the genetic level for for bacteria. And... um, And she wondered whether these sequences were being used in cells at the level of RNA, whether cells made little RNA copies of these sequence arrays and then used the the RNA molecules to somehow protect the cells from future infections by those those, uh, viruses. And so she, you know, I think she Google searched, you know, who at Berkeley works on, you know, regulatory RNA, and my name popped up. So she called me, and she said, you know, "Can can I talk to you? And so we met at the Free Speech Movement Cafe, and she showed me her data, and uh, I, was, I was fascinated. And I decided that this would be something really, really fun to kind of, kind of play around with, never imagining uh, where it would lead. Right. And, and this is actually where Lawrence Berkeley Lab comes into yeah. the story. Well, no, because uh, Jill and I started meeting regularly to discuss the, the, the sort of her observations and how one might go about testing this, this possible adaptive immune system in bacteria. And that led to conversations with several uh, members of the lab and, and their interests in bacteria and soil bacteria, the way that uh, these microbes are interacting with the environment. And they had also come across these CRISPR sequences. And so, we're, you know, there's sort of this interesting little foment of, of people who were coming together and started to meet regularly. I think we started to have monthly meetings where we were talking about this. And that led to a, uh, a, a grant that we got from the Lawrence Berkeley Lab in the form of an LDRD uh, that provided some seed money to work on this project. And we, had, we really had money for one person. And so we were trying to figure out, you know, who, who do we bring on board in this project? And it just so happened that a guy had uh, come to my lab to start a postdoc, and his name was Blake Wiedenheft. 
And he came from uh, Montana State University, so he'd been doing a lot of work with microbes uh, that he collected in the hot springs of Yellowstone, among other places. Le many of them had CRISPRs, so he had become very aware of these, these elements. He just had no idea, like, like the rest of us, how they might work, and he wanted to come to work on this. And he was someone who um, was so uh, kind of passionate and charismatic and you know, he got, to, the, got to, the, to this environment, and he gave a talk at one point to our little group that included Berkeley lab members. And even though he didn't have any data, he actually he was so enthusiastic about his project. He had all these ideas that, uh, that, that uh, Steve Holbrook, I think it was, you know, pulled me aside and said, gee, we really ought to, you know, we ought to use the LDRD money to, to bring this guy on board. So just in case not everyone in the world knows what LDRD is. Ah, okay. Sorry. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody but Appreciate I, the choir here. Uh, um, but th this is streamed around the internet. You know, the world is. What is it? What is it? It's something to do with the discretionary money from the lab. Uh, it, what is it? Lab directors. R and D. R and D. Right. Okay. It's it's money that can be rationally spent on interesting projects. <laughs> that couldn't possibly get funded anywhere, anywhere else. else. Right. Okay. Yeah. Fine. So so how? I mean, when did the when did the um, the lab's interest, I mean, maybe you were working on multiple directions in terms of RNA, uh, how it worked to trans, uh, uh, change the way genes are expressed in labs, and, of course, RNA interference was coming up around this same time. When, when did the CRISPR part of your investigations start to take over, or were they always in parallel and, and, until one point? No, they were, they, were, uh, they were distinctly very minor uh, mm -hmm. part of my, my, my research and in fact, I felt kind of guilty, and this is where I was also very grateful to the LDRD funding, because I had, uh, my lab was uh, funded largely by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and I was, uh, you know, I was going to be coming up for a review at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and I, I, you know, I had some sleepless nights thinking, how am I going to defend to a medical institute that I'm working on a bacterial immune system? It seemed like a, maybe a tough sell. So... Um, so we were, you know, it was definitely a, a very small kind of ask, uh, part of my lab, but um, I went to You couldn't a, have just told them that it was going to lead inevitably to a, <laughs> <laughs> a gene editing system that would have like fundamental... Just, just wait, yeah, yeah, just, right. just, you know, hold right. on, hold your horses. Yeah. Right. Um, well, so I, 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 so it was this very small part of my lab, and then I went to a meeting in 2011 where I met Emmanuel Charpentier. And she and I had read each other's papers in the scientific literature, but we hadn't actually met until that conference. And while we were there, we started talking about the work going on in, in each of our labs. And, and she was telling me that uh, she was working on a, uh, one of the types of bacteria that infect people that have a compromised immune system, a bug called streptopyogenes. And this bug has a CRISPR system that was different from the ones that my lab had been studying up until that point. It had a single gene in the, in the sort of associated with these CRISPR arrays that had been shown genetically to be responsible for the adaptive immunity in these bugs, and it was a gene called Cas9. And so when we met at that conference, we realized that you know, we had very complementary expertise. She was a great microbiologist. My lab does a lot of biochemistry and structural biology, and that if we put our expertise together, we could figure out the function of this protein encoded by the Cas9 gene. And so that really started us on a, a project that eventually, um, through the work of Martin Jinek and, and, and Chris Chylinski, two 
people that were working in our, in our uh, respective labs. They were actually communicating over Skype. They'd never met in person, mm-hmm. kind of an amazing thing, and sending uh, samples back and forth by FedEx. And they uncovered the, the, the biochemical activity of this protein and realized that it's, a, it's an RNA-programmed protein that can be directed to cut DNA sequences uh, of, of, of any desired sequence by using the guiding RNA and changing the guide RNA sequence to, to match the sequence of DNA where you wanted to introduce a double-stranded break. But the, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think for us, when we did those experiments and saw the way this protein worked and how it could be redesigned to have a simpler uh, guide RNA that, uh, that uses a single piece of RNA to, to hold on to the protein and also provide the sequence information for DNA cutting. That was really when there's sort of this you know, proverbial moment, I guess, when Martin Jinek was in my office showing me his data, and we kind of looked at each other, and we realized, holy moly, you know, this, this project is really, is really going in a, in, a, in a very exciting uh, direction that we couldn't have expected before this right. moment. But again, I just, I just think, I think, I'm almost clear on this because I've been reading it and rereading it, but, but the, se- the, the sequence that the, the guide RNA is using in a bacterial system is the sequence found in the CRISPR region. Right. Yeah. So it's taking the sequence of a viral Page or something like that, mm-hmm. and making a cut in that so it's deactivating the virus. Yeah. And what you're saying is, instead of using that template, you can begin to well do your own template. You say instead of we, we're not interested in cutting viruses, we're interested in cutting hemoglobin genes or whatever. So you find another sequence. Right. And and the first, I like the first gene that you tried to do this on was green fluorescent protein, right? Yeah, right. I think that's really cool. Because you just think, what do we got in the lab that we can try this on? Basically. Yeah. (laughs) There were, you talk in the book about a lot of people sort of noodling around on the edges of this, because CRISPR wasn't, I mean, it's not a well-known field, but there were, there were groups of people, oh, sure. and you mentioned this whole industry of uh, the food industry trying to figure out how to avoid, uh, how to understand the, the, the viral susceptibility to viral infection of bacteria that are important in creating yogurts and cheeses and stuff like that. So how much, how much of this is a kind of a convergent evolution of science where a lot of people were sort of pushing toward the same direction? It, it seems like there were several. Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, I think that's one of the really fun uh, threads to this, the whole CRISPR story was how the science was really, uh, you know, came, came together from several labs that were seemingly really disconnected from each other. You know, there was a bioinformatician working in Spain, Francisco Mojica, who was one of the people that noticed, was the first to notice that these CRISPR arrays had integrated viral sequences in, the, in, these, in these arrays and that that might be uh, a sign of, a, of an adaptive immune system. And then there was the, the team at uh, Danisco, this yogurt company, that was uh, interested in protecting their bacterial cultures from phage infection and how to, how to do that efficiently. So their interest in the CRISPR system was very practical. You know, how do we harness this thing and get it to work and protect our, our cultures from, from infection. 
And then there were, um, there were, uh, there were some labs uh, in the Netherlands who were interested in the biochemistry of these, of these enzymes and started to study, as we did, you know, started to study uh, how these, these proteins with their guiding RNAs actually work. Yeah. Now, now so, so, right now, so, at the, so you, you realize at the beginning, this gives you a chance to go into a living cell to make a directed cut in the DNA and either break it and have it not work at all or insert something at that point, change it in some desired way, and have the cell continue to live, right? Yeah. And so the, the obvious importance of that, I mean, that becomes, the consequences of that become obvious to a lot of people right away. And suddenly you go from being a basic researcher who's trying to understand this mechanism of how does this, these strange sequences work and how, to somebody who's developed what's a tool for biologists, but then even more than that. So talk a little bit about this, this funny intersection between becoming, having lots of basic questions to ask about the system, which you've just figured out, and having other people saying, yeah, we could do this, we could do this, you know, all these other things that people are trying to use it for. Yeah, well, it was a, a sort of a fascinating um, transition because, um, as you point out, you know, my lab, and we still do, you know, very interested in fundamental mechanisms and the biochemistry and structural biology of these systems and how these molecules are working. And, um, and so that was all, you know, sort of continuing to, to, to go on in our lab and, and others, but, um, but there was this massive, um, you know, adoption of this technology by labs uh, globally that happened within a matter of months. I mean, it was very, very fast. And, you know, starting to see this, this sort of um, incredible uh, crescendo of, you know, publications in the scientific literature, people uh, speaking at meetings, talking about using the technology. My, email inbox, you know, starting to fill up with people uh, interested in, in using it in different ways and, and mostly not really asking for help, but more, more often just emailing results of their experiments and saying, wow, look, look, you know, we just, we just changed the genetics of the fly, you know, this butterfly and now I've been able to control wing pattern development, you know, just really crazy, crazy, all sorts of really fascinating and crazy stuff that was going on. And, um, and so I, you know, I remember going to a meeting. Uh, I had a meeting with, um, with several people in Boston kind of early in 2013, and I had a, had a brunch uh, with George Church. And you know, George, of course, one of the people who's been uh, for a long time in the field of, of, of gene and genome engineering and gene editing and you know, using earlier technologies for doing this. And, and uh, so you know, having this brunch with him and talking about uh, what we were doing in the lab and asking him, you know, where, you know, what, where, what, what's, what's happening? You know, what, what do you, what do you think is, is, uh, is going to happen next? And he said, well, Jennifer, there's a, there's a tidal wave coming. And he said, it's going to be big. I don't know how big yet, but it's going to be really, really big. And I've always remembered that because it really literally was kind of right on the cusp of when the, you know, the, the sort of the widespread adoption was just taking off and you could really start to imagine all of the ways that, that a technology like this was going to be utilized in agriculture and clinical medicine and fundamental research and, and all sorts, you know, synthetic biology. And, and, and it was just sort of a time of, you know, I think many people sort of starting to, it started to dawn on many people that this technology was really going to transform the way we were all doing science. Yeah. 
<laughs> Excuse me. So at that point, you're a basic researcher, and you could say, you know, take this, do what you want. I'm going to go back into the lab and pursue the intellectual, scientific questions that this has raised for me. But instead, you you take on a much more um, public policy-oriented set of questions, like what what should we be doing this, or are there any limits to what we should, and how should we start thinking about this? And I'm curious to know, you know, what was that about? I, I mean, had you been particularly active in bioethics or ethical questions of research up until then? So what no. what made you? I mean, there were obviously there were implications, but not everyone feels it's there. Um, I mean. I'm just the scientist. You decide about how you want to use my work is what some people would feel. Right. Well, I, and I have to be very honest that it was, not, uh, it was not sort of an easy or natural thing, I guess, for me to, you know, recognize that it would be important for me to be uh, discussing the implications of gene editing in a, in a very public way. In fact, it, was, it felt very, very terrifying in many ways. Um, I, one thing that had happened in early 2013 was that I had gone to our dean, uh, Steve Martin, at the time at Berkeley, and you know, I said, I, I need to talk to you about a paper. And I'm sure he was like, oh, why do you want to come and talk to me about a paper? Yeah. I'm busy. But I said, no, I really need to show you a paper. And I showed him our, 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 our paper with Emmanuel that we had published in 2012. And I said, you know, I think this technology is really, is really going to be transformative. And I think Berkeley should, should really uh, try to to take the lead in not only uh, on the research uh, side of this, but also really on the you know grappling with the social implications of of, of this technology. And, and fortunately, he agreed. And with Michael Botchin, uh, uh, a, a close colleague of mine, and, and several other people, Bob Tejan, Ed Penhote, several others, and some colleagues at UC San Francisco, Jonathan Weissman, Keith Yamamoto, we started the Innovative Genomics Institute. Uh, here uh, uh, on the Berkeley campus and, and with a partnership at UCSF. And one of, the, one of the things that we wanted that institute to do was to help educate people who were not scientists about this new technology and what it meant for the future, what kinds of problems could be solved and what kinds of problems it might raise, you know, what kind of ethical challenges it might uh, bring along with it. And I, I still vividly remember a conversation we were uh, we had hired Jacob Korn to be our, our, our scientific director, and I think it was sitting with him and Mike Botchin. We were sitting in, 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 uh, in Jacob's office, and we were talking about what role all of us as, as scientists who were starting this institute should play in the discussion of the, of the ethics of gene editing and, and, and really grappling with this and, and you know, thinking about, you know, should we try to write a piece for the New York Times, uh, sort of an op-ed piece, should we, you know, should we do something else? And in the end, we realized that well, what we really ought to do is we ought to bring together some other scientists to help us think through what, uh, what the next step should be. And that actually led to a meeting that was held in early 2015 in the Napa Valley that included uh, two of the scientists that had led the early discussions around the ethics of molecular cloning in the 1970s. Paul Berg and, and David Baltimore, and then we had a, a number of others in the room as well. And, uh, and I think that was kind of a, a real turning point in a way, because I, I, I realized that you know, it, it, was, it almost felt to me like a responsibility to be helping to 
put this issue into the into the sort of the public arena and get people involved in the conversation. So if if you had to, I mean, obviously when you write this um, op-ed piece or any piece that you're going to write, you're going to have to explain to people here's what we have to start thinking about. So what 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 do you what's what is the first part of the what, what do you say to people? Here's why it's important to think about this. These are people who don't understand how, because they don't understand, I mean, most people, how CRISPR works or why it's important or, you know, what genes are, whatever level you want to start at. But how do you explain to people why this is something they should pay attention to? Well, I learned, I learned pretty quickly that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't use a lot of jargon. Uh, <laughs> I think I told you that. No. You probably told me uh, that. Yeah. Among others. I'm sure you did. <laughs> Um, and and, uh, and that, that, that it was really important to use, um, find some helpful analogies so that people could understand what gene editing really means and, um, and that it wasn't so important for them to understand all of the, the, uh, the, the, the details of the science, but, but really they needed to understand the principles of what, what this really meant. What, what was a technology like this allowing scientists to do that wasn't possible before and why is that a game changer? Why does that, that change uh, the way that scientists would approach their research, but also how we might think about solving uh, real problems that, that you know, society is facing? Um, and so I just, you know, I guess I've been, I, I consider my, I, you know, it's a learning trajectory, right? You're sort of always trying to try things out, trying out different analogies and, and seeing what, what might work. I mean, I... And it goes both ways. Like, I, I remember, uh, you know, I've always tried to, especially if I'm speaking to a, an audience of, of non-scientists, try to err on the side of, you know, not getting too down in the technical weeds. But I remember uh, I was giving a talk at one point. I uh, had an evening talk to, uh, I think it was a, a group of alumni and, um, you know, university donors who were, who were attending this, this meeting. And um, so I was talking about gene editing, and I was using the analogy of a, of a, a pair of molecular scissors. You know, I was trying to you, you know, tell, tell people, well, you, know, you can think about it like you know, I have a, have a sit, pair of scissors or a scalpel, and I can cut the DNA sequence in a cell at a, at a precise place that, uh, that uh, might allow the cell to repair a mutation or introduce a new piece of DNA sequence. And at the end of the lecture, somebody stood up and, you know, I had a question, and, and I said, uh, you yeah, know, what's your question? And he, and he said, well, it's not, I know it's not really scissors, <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Okay, point okay. taken. <laughs> right. but, but, but that's explaining how it works. What are the, what are the uh, ethical or moral, if you want, co- consequences of being able to do this that people should discuss? Not how it works, or but what it might be used for. I mean, people have been, I mean, this is this whole argument. I mean, people have been manipulating DNA forever. Yeah. They just haven't been as good at it as they are today. So what, what were the issues that you wanted people to pay attention to? Well, I think, I think a big one, honestly, was the idea that you could use a gene editing technology um, in, in the germline, in the human germline, meaning making changes to egg, sperm, early embryos that would become heritable changes. And, um, and that capability, although it's been a possibility in the past, I think with the CRISPR technology, it real, really becomes a probability. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it, because of the way the technology works and 
how quickly it was being adapted for that kind of application in animals, for example, that it, it became clear pretty early on that this would be a very real possibility as an application in humans. And then that, of course, raises questions, all, all sorts of questions about, about um, you know, who decides about that kind of thing, what, who, who decides uh, what kind of changes one might make in, in, in the human germline if you're going to do that, who pays for it, uh, who regulates it, who gets access to that technology if it's available to some but not others, it becomes problematic. What if it were a state-sponsored thing? Does that raise the issue of eugenics? I mean, just on and on, right? Sort of lots of, and it, and it kind of gets to the whole core of like how we, how we think about what makes us human. What, what, makes, what makes us human? And, and, and now that we have a tool that allows us to tinker with the code of life, you know, and, and, and tinker with our own, uh, our own genetic material in a very precise and controlled way, it's, a, it's sort of a, you know, it makes you think about these, these kinds of possibilities in a very different way. So I'm going to, I know we're going to move on to general questions in a minute, but I want to raise this because you talk about it in the book and um, it's an interesting problem. So here you are responsibly sitting down, thinking about this, discussing it, deciding there should be a moratorium. At least for now, let's not do this. Stop. Hold on. And like the next day, there's a paper comes out saying, we've done it. <laughs> and you think, oh, well, that was helpful. I mean... <laughs> How, I mean, this is the genie back in the bottle question, but you, we, you can hold ethical, thoughtful, careful discussions like this one, and some, somebody else is, is not here today, is busy doing something that you think is wrong. And there's nothing, I mean, apart from the lab police running around to stop them. I don't even think we have the lab. Well, okay. <laughs> I, I was, yes. <laughs> I mean, sorry, it reminds yeah. me, I mean, back in the day I was reporting on the, um, the release of bioengineered organisms, whether we should be doing that. That's right. a big story for Berkeley once upon a time. And I went and did, a, did some interviews in Israel. And in America there was, we should have committees and discussions and this and that. And then I asked the scientist in Israel who was also trying to make a transgenic tomato or something, well, would you plant this in the field? And he said, well, I'd probably talk to my colleagues first. But that was his level of protection. You know, and here, so, so my question is, you know, it's fine to have the discussion, but what's the, what's the follow-through? Who does, if there's not a lab police, who does make sure that these things don't get ahead of us? Well, here's the interesting thing. So we had this meeting in the Napa Valley in, in uh, January of 2015. And even at that, at that meeting, there was uh, talk over the coffee breaks uh, uh, about three manuscripts that were currently at that time in review at, at, at some of the scientific journals about that, that all reported gene editing in, in human embryos. And, um, and so, you know, it became, we sort of became, or I became aware at that meeting that this work was already at the point where it was, uh, you know, submitted to a journal for publication. And I think one of the interesting things that, that happened next was that, so as you pointed out, so there, uh, we, we wrote a, uh, a perspective piece that was published uh, in, I think it was March of that, the following year, so March of uh, 20, that would have been 2015. And uh, the very next month, April, um, a, one of these papers was published on, on human embryo editing. Got a lot of, lot of attention, a lot of attention in the press and media. But 
The other two papers didn't appear. And, and what we found out later, they were both uh, papers that had uh, originated with groups in China. And when they saw the kind of pushback that happened after the publication of that initial paper, as well as the response to this perspective that we had written, I think they decided to, to hold off on publishing that work. And, and we heard that you know, for, through our colleagues in China that there was actual rethinking among those labs about, you know, is this really, should we really be pushing forward with this. So I think in that sense, there was an effect of going out publicly and putting a, 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 an opinion in the, in, the, you know, in the scientific literature that um, kind of planted a flag and said, you know, here's uh, you know, a group of scientists, small, but you know, a distinguished group of people who have some experience with uh, ethics in, in uh, molecular cloning who are now coming out and saying, we really ought to not proceed quickly down this path without, without careful thoughtful discussion. And I think that did have an effect on the way things happen next. Well, it's a, it's a great set of conundrums because I, you, know, you describe in the book away. many of the reasons to do it and reasons not to do it. Uh, but Mike, maybe you would like to invite the audience to participate in this. I'd like to do two things. First of all, before questions, I'd like to actually have a chance to, to uh, to congratulate our both Joe and Jennifer on such a great conversation. So. And we'll have a few time for uh, a little time for questions. So uh, anyway, uh, people who ask a question, this is being streamed, and so please wait for a microphone. And Dan's going to hand the microphone around. So put up your hand. <laughs> I see one in the back. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all, uh, or thank you both for such a real, such an interesting, insightful conversation. Um, I guess my question is: uh, I know a little bit about kind of the dawn of the nuclear age, right? And Leo Slizard was a a scientist who kind of discovered the chain reaction, the nuclear chain reaction, and that haunted him in some ways because it was used for you know, nuclear power but also led to uh, you know, nuclear weapons. Um, and so I'm curious if you are having any of those kind of thoughts and feelings and how you might be addressing or dealing with those. Well, I certainly, um, early on, I, I, uh, I definitely had very kind of intense thoughts about, you know, what was going to happen with this technology? What, what if it got into the wrong hands? I, I told one of my, my dreams about this to Michael Spector, and it actually got into the New Yorker, much to my kind of <coughs> horror. But, um, <laughs> but it was a dream about Hitler. You know, it was a dream about, uh, about uh, a colleague asking me to explain the CRISPR technology to, to someone and being led into a room, and the person in the chair turned around, and it was Hitler. And this horrifying feeling of, you know, I'm on the spot and I've got to talk to this person and I don't want to do that, you know. And, and, um, and I think that, that uh, I, I've, really, I've really had to kind of grapple with that, and I still do, I have to say. Because, you know, we talked about germline editing, and that's one application that has um, clearly kind of obvious ethical challenges associated with it. But... Uh, but there's also something called gene drives that can, you know, is a way of using 
gene editing to drive a trait very quickly through a population, for example, through an insect population. And already there are groups using this <coughs> mosquitoes to control uh, the spread of mosquito-borne disease, something that could have huge positive impact on human health globally, but also has very real potential for environmental impacts. Um, and then there, are, of course, are all of the implications of using gene editing in agriculture. Do we consider something that's gene edited to be GMO or not? And different countries would say yes or no for the very same product, right? So it's a, also an interesting thing. So I think that it just, um, it, I, I guess the way I look at it right now is I feel like there's a lot of very positive things that will come from a technology that allows precision gene editing. And, and I focus on those, but I also think we have to just be very, very honest and very transparent about other ways that it could be used that would, you know, would have very uh, dangerous or, or ethical uh, implications that really have to be grappled with before just forging ahead. And the thing I worry about the most, honestly, is just, um, is not so much the intentional misuse of this, but it's more the, uh, the rush to do something to attract, you know, to get attention or, you know, just to sort of say, hey, I'm the first to do this. Um, not that scientists ever do that, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would, you know, that would cause a public backlash. Hi, thank you so Hi. much. Um, kind of on what you were talking about, about how the technology has the capacity to be moving forward and potentially faster than the ethics conversations that we're having. I'm wondering if you're involved at all in actual policy design about what can or can't be done and whether that's something that you're thinking about because it's not necessarily something that's been regularly considered in terms of like American or any sort of international policy that limits technological advances. Well, I think the good news is that those conversations have now gotten so big that uh, there'd be no way that any one person could be involved in all of them. So, so I'm, I'm involved in a subset, I would say, but certainly not all. But I think that um, it's, what's heartening is to see that people like Francis Collins at the National Institutes of Health has been you know, leading some meetings to discuss how gene editing can be used in the clinic eventually and how to work with the Food and Drug Administration to create a pipeline for approval of these drugs that, that would, you know, try to streamline that process so that it's uh, possible to get, you know, to think about how you would do personalized medicine but without having each individual uh, formulation of a gene editor have to go through, you know, its own uh, set of clinical trials, simply not, not feasible. And also, um, you know, I, I, I've seen that uh, there's been a lot of interest uh, among some of the other government agencies. So the Department of Energy has been out to visit a couple of times. And um, the Department of Defense already has a, a program that they're funding called Safe Genes that's all about trying to create safer ways of using gene editing. So I think, you know, the, these things are, are happening, and I think that's, that's all been very good. Also, it's, uh, there's lots of discussions in other countries, in Asia and in Europe, um, various uh, groups that are involved in um, helping to develop sort of, I wouldn't say policy so much right now. It's more, it's kind of a step before that. It's kind of asking what does this technology really enable and where is it going in the, in the near term, and so then how do regulators need to be 
positioning themselves and how do they need to think about this. So I think that's really where it is. It's still at a pretty, a pretty early stage of, of really just trying to educate our regulators about what they need to be doing. Uh, what should states and or the federal government do that they're not currently doing, if you had to look at policy development, for example? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. What should states and, and our federal government be doing? I think it would start, it would be a good start would be if our federal government uh, really had uh, an Office of Science and Technology Policy. Because I can tell you that in the previous administration, um, I made several trips to that office, and they were very uh, engaged with the science and very knowledgeable. Um, I made several trips. I I went there a couple of times with um, someone from the Berkeley campus who works in government relations, and so we had conversations about um, helping to advise about policy and things like that. So that was, that was great, but that all stopped after, after a year ago, right? So, um, so that's, that's one thing. But I do think that on the state level, there are things that can be done because, you, you know, for, for, I'll just give you one example. So, um, you know, human germline editing is not fundable by, with federal money, Right, so it can't be funded uh, using using uh, federal uh, taxpayer money. But interestingly enough, it's legal to do that kind of work if you have either private money or state money, sort of non-federal money. And so that means that. So some of you may have seen a paper that was published in I think it was uh, um, around the uh, end of the summer from a group up in Oregon that was doing human embryo editing. And they were doing editing on viable human embryos. And the whole purpose of their study very clearly was to establish a protocol that could be used for clinical use of, of, of human germline editing. And, um, and that was funded you know, with, with non-federal money. And so it does raise the question of you know, what's, what's, what happens next. And, um, and so I think that, um, that uh, you know, the state of California, for example, has some say in this because we have the Center for um, uh, the, the CERM, you know, the, for regenerative medicine that funds uh, work on stem cells and, and um, <coughs> could certainly fund the type of research that would not be, you know, could not be paid by federal money right now but could lead to applications of this technology in, in the human germline in the future. So I think that you know, having engagement with our, our state uh, funding agencies actually becomes even more important in, in a way at this particular time. Okay. So thank you, everybody. Thanks again, please. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.